The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, August 11th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning, guys. My name is Shelby. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see you guys. Um, If you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 42 and 43. We're going to be there this morning. It'll also be up on the screen as our uh, projector allows it to be up on the screen this morning. But we've been in this summer psalm series uh, the past two months, taking time each week to look at a sampling of, of different psalms that touch different themes, different topics, different genres. Psalms which are simply a collection of, of prayers and songs that, that have helped shape the language of Christian pilgrims for the past 4,000 plus years. Songs and prayers that give us words when we don't know how to address God in this life. We said a few weeks ago that really up until this point in our Bible, the dominant voice has been that of God speaking to his people. His instructions, his wisdom, his commands. And now in the Psalms, it is the human voice we hear responding to God. And through this inspired discourse in the Psalms, God is also speaking to us today. He's instructing us on how to pray to him, how to praise him. And specifically today in Psalm 42 and 43, how to cry out to him whenever this this blessed life, whenever this good life he has promised us doesn't feel all that blessed, doesn't feel all that good. And these two Psalms are brutal. These two Psalms are brutally honest. They're raw, probably in in a way that makes us pretty uncomfortable, which is why we often steer clear of the Psalms. How could anyone actually talk to God this way? Um, I sure don't. And that's exactly why we need the Psalms, because no one sings about honest feelings like the psalmists do. Just think about this. If these lyrics and these psalms existed in any other musical context, we would be all over them. We'd be singing them on the radio. All of our kids would be singing them to kids, kids bop CDs in, in, in their classrooms. Um, I grew up listening to Smashing Pumpkins whenever they first hit the scene back in the day. I grew up listening to albums like Gish, albums like Siamese Dream, albums full of raw, honest Billy Corgan, Billy Corgan lyrics. And as my parents were quick to point out, very depressing lyrics. Um, I knew all their lyrics. And for 16-year-old me, man, they were real. They touched on real pains, real heartache that I was going through at the time. And in the same way, the Psalms are the songs that we want to know the words to. These are songs we want to have impressed upon our minds, upon our hearts, believing that they will shape and instruct our feelings. Because you know what? And let me just ruin this for a bunch of you. Life is hard. 
And it would be easy for us to get into just a negative spiral with, with our thoughts and our emotions if we let them. But if you've noticed in the Psalms, the negative always leads to the positive. Doubt leads to trust. Anger towards God turns to admiration for God. Sadness always gives way to joy. And so the Psalms invite us to pour out our honest emotions before God, but they also show us that God intends to change how we feel. As good reform type people, we expect God to give us instruction about what we should do and to present us with big truths about himself to chew on and to believe in. But perhaps some of us have never considered that God also presents us with feelings to feel. As God renews our mind through the power of his word, yes, he changes the way we think. And when we think differently and believe differently, we begin to feel differently because our emotions flow out of what we really believe is true in the deepest part of ourselves, not just what we think we ought to believe. This is why we want to soak in the wisdom of this book, letting it become a part of us. You know, we want the Psalms to, to shape not only our thoughts about God, but our feelings about Him, our feelings about life in this world that He has made. And the Psalms provide us with a vocabulary for expressing the broad range of human emotions, even the negative ones as we'll see today. But also, as we'll see today, for the psalmist, it's a way to actually draw closer to God, instead of pushing him further away, pushing further into doubt and resentment. And so in that sense, the Psalms actually coach us in worship that is both pleasing to God and beneficial to us. And this includes expressing both our gladness and our sadness. So this morning, we're going to look at two of the sad ones, Psalm 42 and 43, Psalms of Lament. Songs of crying out to God in grief. Songs expressing sorrow to God. Mourning to God about life under a relentless sun. And these two, these two psalms really stand in stark contrast to the, the comfortable spirituality of our age. You know, some of us have been told that, that to be a Christian means to not expect a life without struggle or pain or weakness, or difficulty, or even tragedy. But when you read these psalms and you read the anguish of the psalmist's heart, you find the resources for a spirituality that meets the realities of our present experience outside those doors. The psalmist here deals with the hard realities of life and he pours his soul out to the living God. He pours his complaint out to God, his heartaches out to God, his emptiness out to God. Notice he brings everything right to God, holding nothing back. How much do you hold back from God? Because until we until we recover that kind of honest spirituality, we will always continue just to simply float on the surface and ignore the wealth of the riches given to us in the Word of God, especially in the Psalms. 
So let's jump in today, Psalm 42. If you look there in your Bible, you'll notice that again we are presented with a psalm written by the sons of Korah. I promise I didn't intentionally set out to have a Sons of Korah theme this summer, even though Sons of Korah does sound like a really cool biker gang. Um, but once I realized it, it actually gave me some, some common threads um, through these psalms. So yes, you will hear some of the thame, same themes that we touched on two weeks ago whenever we looked at Psalm 84, and really that, that's on purpose. It's written by the same, probably not the same person, but the same group of people. You know, and as I mentioned then, these, these Korahites were, were special, special Levites. They worked in the temple and had responsibilities both as caretakers for the temple and as sort of the resident temple, temple singers. And much like the psalmist from Psalm 84, this Korahite finds himself separated from the temple, separated from the people of God and from the worship which he has had the glorious privilege of leading in. And he's longing to be back at God's house. And he's turning his longing into a prayer and a song of faith and hope in God himself. He is on another pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And whatever the circumstance is here, the anguish that the psalmist feels on being away from the house of God, being away from the people of God, from the worship of God, his anguish is palpable. Many commentators actually liken this anguish to a spiritual depression. And if that weren't enough, on top of that, um, again, for some, for some reasons that just aren't clear in the text, around him are gathered people who are reviling him and questioning God's covenant faithfulness. People that he calls enemies, he calls adversaries, he calls ungodly people. And the thought of anyone questioning God's covenant faithfulness is actually killing him and driving him to the point of complete despair. And he cries out to God for help in the midst of these struggles. And one thing that may strike you as familiar in these psalms, um, at least for me it was readily familiar, is just simply its structure. Many people believe that Psalm 42 and, and 43 are, are one song. And you may notice it's very much akin to even just like a modern song we would hear on the radio, even what we would sing this morning. It has three stanzas or three verses, if you will, all punctuated by a common chorus or a common refrain. So we're going to look at these three stanzas this morning, and then we're going to turn our attention to this common chorus, to this chorus. And then I, I want to leave you with really what I feel is the real heart of this passage, or as Nacho would say, the nucleus of this passage. So let's jump in. Let's listen to these, this first stanza. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This psalm is primarily known for this opening verse here, this, this metaphor for thirst, for longing for water. It sounds so poetic, so idyllic, and just overall peaceful. And maybe it's because that pretty song all going through your heads right now. So we're just going to sing this and get it over with right now. Ready? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. So nice. So pretty. So serene. And that's the problem when it comes to us really wrapping our minds around this, this verse. The problem is we're envisioning, you know, Bambi running through the backyard of our grandparents' house out in, you know, Powhatan. And we envision some, some gentle brook by the mountainside where trees gently sway in the breeze. And, oh, look at that sweet deer sipping water out of that babbling brook over there. But that's not, that's not the scene being painted here for us. If you've been to the Middle East or even if you've watched any of those awesome Planet Earth documentaries, you know that this is not the case going on here. I mean, you can almost hear Sir Richard Attenborough here. The antelope is in a desperate search for some water, wandering across a precarious precipice. He does not see the desert fox following him. This is the opening scene of this psalm. A parched animal in the wilderness, hunted before his life, trying to find just a drop of water. And this is what the psalmist is comparing himself to. But he's not thirsty for water. What's he thirsty for? The living God. When can I come appear before him? So right out of the gate in this psalm, what we get is not a scene of how sweet life is, but we actually get a reminder that life is hard. Life will leave you parched. But where do you turn to to quench your thirst? To find relief from life under this relentless sun? Well, I mean, the psalmist gives us no doubt where to turn to to find this relief. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. How soon can I come and appear before him? In addition to that, we also learn that the psalmist has been crying himself to sleep every night. My tears have been my food day and night. Life has left him parched. He's overcome with sorrow and tears. And these people that are um, around him, whether it's just traveling companions or just people he's running into um, uh, on his way back to Jerusalem, seem to just taunt him whenever they see his despair, when they see how desperate he is to get back. For whatever reason, his life has not gone the way that he expected it to go. And in in much the same way, you know, life has a way of 
of leaving us parched, of leaving us desperate. Life is hard. Life is difficult. There's unexpected pain. There's unexpected twist even in our road. How in the world did I end up here? And where are the people to encourage him along the way? They are nowhere to be found. Instead, we hear the people all around him taunting him, where is your God? Now, I I doubt very much that any of us have had anyone say this specifically to us, where is your God? But I'm willing to bet that many of us imagine that people have said this to us. Um, Especially whenever life is hard. Especially whenever you've gone through a tough season. Something goes wrong and you wonder yourself, what are people really saying about me? Whenever they get back to their house. Good thing we're not like him. Good thing we're not like her. Good thing we made different choices. Good thing we didn't do that. These are the types of things that that run through our mind, leaving us feeling like God has forgotten us, leaving us feeling like our friends have forsaken us. And the psalmist here is feeling the sting of all of that. So what do we do in these moments where we begin to spiral downwards in our mind to some pretty dark places. Whenever life becomes unbearable and we don't have anyone around us to encourage us, and really our thoughts just get really dark. Well, here in this psalm, the psalmist begins to to intercept those downward thoughts. He begins to redirect his thirst toward God. And this is the amazing thing about these opening verses. My soul thirsts for God. The story here is not about his thirst, but it's about the God that he's actually thirsty for. Because you see, there's a way to take our lament and to take our sorrow and make it an object in itself. But the point of a lament is not that you lament, it's that you let your thirst actually lead you to God. The point of the lament is not to say, man, I'm sure glad I got that off my chest. The point of the lament is actually to name your thirst, name your desperation, so that you can aim your thirst. Yes, I just said that. Name it and aim it. (laughs) I'm longing for you, God. I'm broken and desperate and parched, and I need you, God. And so the psalmist begins to intercept his downward spiral of his thoughts and begins to redirect it to God. And so this this morning, I want us to to really major on this. I want us to uh, spend some time um, uh, reflecting on this. Where do you feel the anxious toil of this life seeping in? What areas of your life just leave you dry and parched and just desperate and thirsty for for something else, anything else?
What would it look like for you to aim that thirst and desperation towards God? This last question is really what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to look at it this morning really because I want us to look what it looks like for the psalmist to actually do this for the rest of these two psalms. What it looks like for him to aim his thirst towards God. Life will leave us parched. And what is the first thing the psalmist encourages us to do? He encourages us to remember the people of God in the house of God. To remember the people of God. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Twice in this psalm, the psalmist will use this word, remember. When your present is difficult and the future is unknown or looking bleak, the only thing you can fall back on is the past. And so he starts going back to the past and he says, I remember. And what is it he is remembering here? How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. More than likely, he is remembering one of the great feast days where, where him and other worshipers would make their way to the temple of the Lord, reminding themselves along the way that they were on the way to encounter the living God, to meet with him, to be in his presence. He's remembering this. He's remembering gathering with the saints. He's remembering gathering with the church. He's saying here, you know, I, I miss the people who understand the power of the presence of God. I miss the people who are shaped by the presence of God, the people who are on this journey with me, who are on this pilgrimage with me, who have committed to walk in this procession of life with me towards the house of God. The church is the people who understand this power, the power of the presence of God, the people who understand that there's nothing else in life that can satisfy your thirst except for God himself. And the psalmist is saying here, I miss those people. I want to be with those people because they get it, especially whenever life is hard. The psalmist is panting here after the living God, but he's not panting for some, for some isolated, individual, Rambo, extraordinary experience of the living God off by himself somewhere. He's panting to experience the living God together with the people of God. He longs to appear before the living God, to encounter the living God, to see the face of the living God with other like-minded people, with other worshipers of God equally as enthusiastic as he is, equally as desperate as he is. And notice in these first four verses what the object is of all his longing the object of his panting. In verse 1, it's, it's simply God himself. My soul pants for God. My soul thirsts for when shall I come and appear before God? 
Who does he miss here? He misses God. He misses fellowship with God. He is a worshiper who, for whatever reason, can't worship. He can't be in the house of God, and it's killing him. So what does he do? He anchors his trust. He anchors his hope in the memory of worshiping God with the people of God. This gathering, no matter how hot it is, no matter how many fans we got blowing in here, no matter how loud it is, this gathering is a means of grace for you and I. It's a means of helping each other remember where all of our trust and hope should be anchored in God alone. This gathering isn't an end in and of itself, but it's a means of grace by which we gird ourselves in the worship of God, stealing and preparing and strengthening our souls for the inevitable realities of life on this spinning mud ball. Memories of gathering with the saints of God is an anchor to our psalmist's soul. We think way too lightly of our time together on Sundays. For most of us, me included, this is the first thing we toss inside should any other event coincide with this. Kids sports. This gathering is a means of grace for our psalmist when he is spiritually dry, when he's spiritually thirsty. This is a means of grace for you. Is it an anchor for your soul? Let's keep going on. Verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? My soul is cast down within me. Our psalmist is depressed. So what does he do? He remembers God. He remembers God himself. Verse 6 says he remembers him from the heights, and then he starts naming some mountaintops that he's remembered God from. And then it says he's remembered him from the depths, and then starts naming some depths. And full disclosure here, um, I did try and find a commentary that said that the deep calling out to deep, the breakers and the waterfalls, was actually something positive because I'm fairly certain I've probably sung something similar uh, to that in some sort of worship song. As deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, you know, it's like the roar of God. No, that's not the case at all. 
Um, everything I read said the psalmist is talking about the crushing blow of life here. <laughs> that feeling when life breaks over you like a, like a crushing waterfall and you feel like you're drowning in the depths, you're disoriented and don't know which way is up. The, the psalmist is saying here in those moments of, of desperation, I will reorient my life around God. I will remember God on the heights and I'll remember him in the depths. I'll remember him when I'm on the mountains and I'll remember him when I'm in the deserts. I'll remember him whenever I feel like I'm being crushed by wave after wave of life. When life is disorienting, our psalmist reorients his life around God. And sometimes remembering God this way looks like taking your complaint directly to him. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? When times are tough like this, whenever you're going through a rough patch, God's not looking for some false display of piety from you whenever life is tough. Oh Lord, thank you for the calamity which befalleth me. No, that's ridiculous. Remembering God in tough times is simply being honest before him. God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? And so the psalmist's way of remembering God is by saying, I feel unremembered by you. That's his way of remembering God. And in the midst of his crying out to God, we still got these people all around him taunting him. And he feels it. As the text says, he actually feels it all the way to his bones. Where is your God? Good thing we're not like you. You know, as I've, as I've just prayed for, over this text and just chewed on it for a while, um, these were questions I, I was just asking myself. Have I ever said or thought anything like this as I've encountered other struggling people? Probably not said it, but, but I've certainly thought it. Man, good thing I made better choices. Good thing I'm not like you. And so I, I pray this morning that, that I'm not like these people whenever I encounter someone struggling. Even if I never say it, I don't even want to think it. How about you today? Do you get on your moralistic high horse whenever you encounter somebody struggling? Do you try and fix them? Do you secretly thank God that you're not like them? You know, in some ways, I am, um, uh, I am um, ashamed to say, yeah, I've, I've thought that. 
on different occasions. But the encouragement here is to listen to them, pray with them, help them remember God in those situations. And so moving on in our text to our third stanza, Psalm 43 starts to move from his lament into his petition. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Sometimes remembering God looks an awful lot like petitioning God. Sometimes remembering God is asking God to vindicate me and defend me against ungodly people, people who are lying about me, people who are mistreating me. But notice how the tone of his prayer changes even just over these four verses. It starts with vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause, and it ends with just let me come before your altar. It starts with, God, I really need you to fix some stuff. Or, God, I really need you to fix some other people. But it ends with, I just want to be close to you. In Old Testament Israelite worship, the, the altar is about the closest place you can get to God. And our psalmist here is longing for proximity with God. This is what happens when you begin to redirect that thirst and desperation towards God. Your thirst actually becomes a way to draw near to Him. Your thirst becomes a way to say, God, at the very end of it all, what I'm longing for most is you. Yes, I want vindication. Yes, I want to be delivered. Yes, I want my circumstances to change. But God, just let me be near your altar. Let me be near and close to you. And this then leads into the chorus of our song here. And, and this third point, what does it look like to be thirsty for God? We remember that our hope is in God. Three times in Psalm 42 and 43, he sings this same refrain, the same chorus, all to punctuate the three stanzas that we just read. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I can almost picture Al Franken's Stuart Smalley character from Saturday Night Live here, he used to stand in front of that mirror saying, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Except our psalmist here is standing looking in the mirror saying, hope in God. This is his chorus. This is the thing that he keeps coming back to 
over and over and over again. What, what common chorus do you come back to whenever your soul is cast down? Whenever you're feeling depressed and low or spiritually dry and parched, what common refrain do you come back to when your soul is in turmoil? Because honestly, we will do anything we can to distract ourselves from this feeling, from this thirst, from this desperation for something more. How often do we simply medicate ourselves through, through, through a Netflix or distract ourselves with friends? There's always just another thing going on, just another this, just another that. Anything to make us forget how desperate we are, how thirsty we are, that our souls are cast down or in turmoil. But the psalmist here doesn't want to forget. And so he writes this refrain to sing and pray over and over again. He says, no, I'm not going to ignore what's going on inside me, what I feel. I'm going to actually acknowledge it. Yes, I am downcast. Yes, my insides are in turmoil. Shelby, hope in God. And this isn't some positive reinforcement. This isn't the psalmist turning that frown upside down. This isn't the psalmist being unwilling to acknowledge what he's actually going through. This is the psalmist saying, there's a greater and there's a truer hope than what I'm facing right now. There's a greater and truer reality than what I'm facing now. I have a reason to hang on. I have a reason to make it. I have hope. But even though this is the refrain that the psalmist keeps coming back to in the midst of all his struggles, I actually think the real foundation, the, the real heart, the nucleus of this whole song actually lies in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Here in the center of this psalm, as waves are crashing down over his life, the psalmist finds his footing in the steadfast love of God. He finds his footing in the truth that the Lord's love doesn't just come and go like the waves that are crashing around him, but it's actually steadfast in the middle of the waves. Steadfast love. We actually need two English words to translate this Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. And we can never get enough English words to translate hesed. If you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids, then you'll know Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Come on, guys, go back and reread that. It's constant. And in all, you know, add in all the adjectives you want there. Hesed is about God's covenant love. It's about God's loyal love to his people. 
And our psalmist is able to interrupt his downward spiral and redirect his hope into God over and over again because he says, Lord, I know that you have directed your steadfast love towards me. I know that you pour out your unfailing love on me and your song is with me even in the night. And I love this because if you you remember just a little bit ago in the chorus, he says, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So what the psalmist is trying to say here is, God, the only reason I still have a song to sing is because you're the one still singing. Through my darkest night, you are still singing, reminding me that my feelings of drowning in this difficult circumstance are not what define my reality. It's your steadfast love for me in Christ that provides security in my storm. And for some of you today, this is real. This is, this is now for you. You know the dark nights What are you telling yourself? What are you saying to your soul? What are you telling yourself in these moments? Are you quieting your heart? Are you saying to your soul, can you hear it? Can you hear the Lord singing over you? He directs his song to us at night. This song that proclaims the steadfast love of the Lord, God's always and forever love for his children, a love that never lets go, not when the breakers crash over you, not on the heights of the mountain, not in the dryness of the desert. The steadfast love of the Lord holds you in all those moments. The psalmist remembers this. He remembers that his hope, his very existence is in God's hands. And, and just very practically, what is this song that the Lord is singing? Maybe it's all the things that the psalmist has already reminded himself of. Maybe it is remembering songs that he sang with other believers in the gathering. Maybe it's rehearsing his own testimony of how God brought him from death to life. Maybe it's remembering God's promises to him in his word. It's probably one or all of these things. These things give him hope when his circumstances seem hopeless, and they should give us hope too today. And this hope is not that everything works out right in my 75 years on this planet. The hope is not that I have enough in my bank account. The hope is not that I get a good report from the doctor. The hope is not that life will get better. The hope is in the steadfast love of God and God alone. And this is personal for the psalmist. He calls him my rock there in verse 9. Only the steadfast love of God can satisfy our thirst, our desperation. 
So throughout these two psalms, the psalmist has gone back and forth really between overwhelming depression and, and, and being ruggedly hopeful. Guess what? He's just like you and me. This is a very real person here. Real people take one step forward and two steps back. This psalmist has a great desire for God, but he senses a great distance has come between himself and God. And so he uses this vivid imagery to help us understand what he feels like on the inside. He feels dried up. He feels full of longing with no relief, much like a panting deer. He thirsts for God. He feels like he's struggling for breath under the crashing waves of life, and he feels wronged by people. He feels treated unfairly by people. And so as Christians today, you should hear this psalm And you should actually look beyond it to Calvary. You should look beyond it and seeing our suffering Savior Jesus on the cross. Scripture tells us that Jesus was fully human and felt all the the human emotions that we feel. Do you think Jesus knows what it's like to feel all the things the psalmist is describing here? On the cross, we hear Jesus crying out, I thirst. On the cross, Jesus experienced the unquenchable dryness and thirst that you and I deserve to feel forever because of the distance our sin has put between us and a holy God. And because Christ experienced this dryness and distance from God for us, we can drink forever from springs of living water and never be thirsty again. We can draw near to God. On the cross, Jesus too struggled for breath as he felt the weight of our sin crash down on him like waves. He understands what it is to be overwhelmed and under so much pressure that you struggle for breath. Jesus also knows what it's like to be lied about. He knows what it's like to be treated unjustly. And rather than defend his cause, he stayed silent. Rather than call on God to rescue him, he absorbed all of the abuse mankind inflicted on him. Jesus showed us how to endure unjust treatment. He put his hope He put his trust in God alone. (laughs) 
On the cross, Jesus put his hope in the power of God by which he would rise from the dead. He put his hope in the plan of God through which he would bring salvation to the people of God, to you, to me. His hope wasn't that God would deliver him from the mistreatment, but that he would deliver him through it. And the same is true for you and I today. While he may not rescue us from our difficulty, we can be certain that he will preserve us through it. We need the light of God's truth today. We need it whenever life feels dark, whenever our circumstances seem hopeless, when God feels far away, whenever the people of God aren't near. We need his light to help us run in the right direction. The goal being not just to escape from our difficulties, but to escape to God himself. To go to his altar. And on this side of the cross, we know with more clarity where that altar actually is. It's not in a temple built with stones. We have an altar to go to before God. Our altar is the crucified and risen Jesus. And so it's so easy for us in times of distress to simply give in to endless introspection, to give in just to self-pity. And when we do, we stay right where we are, dry, drowning, needing deliverance. But the encouragement today is to bring our distress to Jesus. Let him flood our lives with living water. we can remember today that he is the rock beneath our feet. We can let his word light our path so that we can run in his direction. Our lives do not have to be defined by what we feel, as real as those feelings may be. Rather, our lives are to be defined by the steadfast, redeeming love revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Look to him today in the midst of your struggles. Hope in God. He's with you today. His song is with you even now. Remind yourself of it even now. So let's remind ourselves of it now as we sing. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. My help, my rock, I will praise Him. Sing, oh, sing through the raging storm. You're still my God. Let's sing that again. Let's sing to our souls this morning. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. My, I will praise you. See, see, see the rain. 
directing your hearts even now. It's your way of aiming your desperation, your thirst at the Lord himself in the midst of, of a dark night, in the midst of just a dry desert. So let's sing this again and let's aim our hope. Let's reorient our lives around God himself. Let's sing this again. Oh, my soul. communion this morning, you can go ahead and come forward and, and get ready. The place where the psalmist wants us to be, the place where the psalmist is inviting all of us to this morning is the altar of God. There is no better place for desperate people today there's no better place for sinners today than the altar of God. That altar today for us is Jesus. There's no better rock. There's no better refuge. There's no better friend. And so we remember him now. We take time to remember his body being broken on the cross and remember his blood being shed. We remember how he endured thirst and trials and rejection so that you and I could find eternal satisfaction in God. So that our eternal thirst for God could be quenched. Come to his altar today. Come to Jesus. Remember your first joy, your first love. Remember God. Put your hope in Him today. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you distressed like this psalmist. Like Jesus, our, our souls are, are overwhelmed with sorrow by the circumstances that surround us. Father, even now we, we think about everyone dealing with loss. Spouses, children, unborn babies, friends, relatives. God, we grieve today over all these losses and we confess that we don't understand. Father, we're also filled with sorrow over, over the relational difficulties many of us encounter. Difficulties that have overtaken marriages because of affairs, porn addiction, broken trust, insecurities, anger. Father, we also feel the pain of wayward children who reject you, of wayward, of wayward spouses wayward relatives that all reject you. 
We grieve the anxiety that ravages our lives, the darkness of depression that bleeds into every part of our soul, the highs and the lows that destroy our relationships. We hate it. And Father, we also confess today that we often struggle to see you in the midst of these trials. And we also acknowledge that many of our trials have been brought on us through our own sin. We've chased the false gods of sex, money, comfort, control, escapism. And now we're simply experiencing the consequences of these choices. We hate it, yet we keep coming back to it. We feel so trapped. Forgive us, Father. Help us today. Because we, we don't grieve today as those who have no hope. On this side of the cross, we know that all of our grief and sorrow and sin has been borne by another for us. For on the cross, Jesus, the ultimate grief bearer, took our sins and sufferings upon himself so that we would not be consumed by your wrath. That we wouldn't be consumed by the sufferings that come in this broken world. Because of Jesus' atoning work on our behalf, we not only experience today salvation amidst sorrow, but we also have great confidence that one day all of our sorrows will be wiped away when Jesus returns to right all wrongs and cause us to walk with you in unbroken fellowship. Lord, thank you for hope today because of Jesus. Help us to continue to submit ourselves to you just like Jesus did, trusting in your goodness, relying on the Holy Spirit to help us when we feel too exhausted to go on. Oh, my soul, put your hope in God. Tell yourself, your soul that now. Put your hope in God. We need your help today, Father. Strengthen us now as we remember Jesus, as we remember what he's done for you. Strengthen us in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.